This case is about an innocent 16-year-old girl who disappeared while on duty as a lifeguard in her hometown. Molly disappeared in 2000. We, we held out hope for a long time. So I think, um, you know, I, I probably didn't start looking for a murderer until 2003. That's Heather Bish, sister of Molly Bish, on a mission to find her sister's killer and help solve other unresolved cases. I've been really working on um, bringing familial DNA to Massachusetts. Now, with a new lead in the case, there's new hope. Uh, they say that the case is, is still very active. I, I believe that. Um, you know, I still believe we're still one piece away. I think the complication with Molly's case is that there are so many persons of interest. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences. I also want to thank investigators for writing reviews on Apple Podcasts and sharing the episodes. It's a way for you to be a part of the investigation, and reviews really help independent podcasts like this one get noticed. Now grab a glass of wine, get ready to take mental notes. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for this episode, The Mystery and Murder of Molly Bish. It's a case that I've wanted to cover and shed some light on since I started the podcast. In fact, every episode in this limited season three is going to have that sort of connection. So be sure to hit subscribe and watch for more episodes. You can also see case-related pictures on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, under show notes. And if you want to share pictures of Molly, that would be amazing. Uh, Recently, more than 20 years after she disappeared from her lifeguard post at Commons Pond in Warren, Massachusetts, big developments in the case. I sat down with Molly's older sister, Heather Bish, something that I've been wanting to do for several years now. You know, I've been wanting to talk to you for the past three years, ever since. We oh, really? Started, yeah, ever since we started the podcast and for whatever reason, didn't work out. There was that whole thing last year, that little pandemic. Oh, um, yeah, right. <laughs> That, um, and that's the reason why, you know, we're talking to each other now with your headset and, you know, you're working from home like a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, but you're always working on this case as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's been a long time. I, I, I've actually been working on a book and I, I keep thinking about names of it and I'm like, how to solve a murder when you're just a teacher or hmm, something to that effect. I don't know. But yeah, it's been a long time. Um, Molly disappeared in 2000. We, we held out hope for a long time. So I think, um, you know, I I probably didn't start looking for a murderer until 2003. But um, yeah, it, it's an it's been an evolution on on um, solving these crimes, and it's been really cool to see the impact of the podcast. That's been, I've, I've been sort of tracking DNA and, and trying to understand and learn about that, um, you know, being a teacher and, and having this whole forensic and DNA, um, you know, arena is so exciting to me that um, when these podcasts came up and people were just, um, 
you know, having so much luck with them. It's been really exciting for me. So I'm, I'm always um, really uh, appreciative when someone asks me to share my story or Molly's story and have us on and, and talk about her case. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me and spending time. And we're going to get into all of the good and the hope for other people. Please tell me about, about Molly and sure. everything that was going on. Yeah. So um, Molly was 16. She was working at got this lifeguard job. She was also working at a, um ice cream place in the next town. And she was really proud. She was saving money for a car and able to buy, you know, clothes at The Gap. I think it was like one of her favorite stores at the time. And um so she and and I had to, I was just leaving college, so I had just spent four years really poor. So <laughs> I was like, it was like getting to the point where like I was like borrowing her clothes without asking, and it was that reversal, and it was kind of fun um, for us. We were kind of just getting into that adult relationship. Um, Molly Molly was she was just a great kid. She was she um, played three sports. She helped bring the soccer team to our high school for girls. She um, she was fun and funny. She liked you know, everybody. She welcomed all kinds of people. She loved people. Um, she had, we, she had some special ed kids that would come into her art class and she would like write them notes and make them feel comfortable. So they didn't feel like they weren't part of the, you know, the group. Um, she just had that personality of, um, you know, just really enjoying life, enjoying the people she was around. Um, and, and, um, our family was small. So, um, my, I had um, a grandmother down the down the street who had just recently passed away, and I, my brother, well, we had inherited her house, so I was um, living there. I had just, I had um, just had a baby uh, eleven months before Molly disappeared, so we were all sort of like getting used to me um, having this baby and trying to keep it alive, and <laughs> what that role <laughs> meant. And so Molly was like um, into that, you know, into you know. Um, feeding Michaela and, and, and seeing her and, um, being like this important person in somebody's life. Um, so that was, that was kind of cool. She was, um, my daughter's, um, godmother. And so we got to have those special events. Um, so that it sounded we, like your family was very close. We were, my mom was from Michigan. So her family, like we didn't have any cousins or anything here. My dad was the only child, um, he didn't actually know his dad, so it was just us. And, you know, we call my, my uncle Mickey, which was my dad's cousin or second cousin. <laughs> That's all we had. Um, so we were very close. We went to each other's, you know, soccer games and horse shows and, um, you know, we, we were pretty, pretty tight. Um, and your brother is the one that was, um, a lifeguard before Molly yes. and he taught her the ropes, right? You yep. were saying that? Yep. Yep. So Molly looked up to John, you know, I think athletic wise and, you know, I think she just like enjoyed listening to music and going shopping with me and, you know, making bracelets or whatever we did at the time. But, um, but John was like, you know, her hero, he was that tough guy. He was very popular. He was very athletic and she very much wanted to be like him. So yeah, she definitely followed his, um, footsteps into lifeguarding and, and he had just trained her, you know, right before. So she was feeling confident. Molly was a, a great swimmer, um, but she didn't really, she actually had wanted to, uh, to work at a hotel in a couple towns away um, because she was more of a, a pool swimmer than she was really into going out into the lakes and, and stuff. She didn't like 
squishy things. She wasn't one to be like <laughs> grounding, walking around without her shoes on. You know, she was like, um, you know, totally uh, not going to be taking that morning swim, you know? Right. So, but, but it, you know, this thing had worked out for her to work at this place. So she, so she was doing it, but she's, she's working as a lifeguard. Um, explain to me the area of where this takes place, where she's lifeguarding. Talk to me about the community. Sure. Um, it sounds like it may be a smaller community because you said she wanted to work two towns away. Yeah, um, yeah, right. So, yeah, we're out here in central Massachusetts, very, very small. Um, one traffic light. I think there was 55 people in my graduating class. Might be a little bigger now, but very small. So you definitely know everybody that you grow up with. And like I said, most people are cousins. Like We were, we were these, like, Michigan outsiders, you know. Um, but... Um, yeah, so you, you, you just have this trust. We didn't lock our doors. We literally didn't even lock our, our doors because we just, we knew our neighbors. We felt really safe there. Um, we just never in a million years imagined that someone, you know, would abduct, you know, my our sister. So Around 10 a.m. on June 27th in the year 2000, Molly's mother, Maggie, drove her to the parking lot at Commons Pond in Warren, Massachusetts, for her new job. She had only been working there eight days. Molly walked over to the shed to get her lifeguard kit and was abducted within minutes. Um, Leading up to, to that day, you know, here we are living in this safe community and having no idea any of any of the things that we would later learn. Um, and that weekend my dad had a stomach bug so i hadn't seen molly so she ended up stopping over that morning to um just see michaela you know like i said i had a a bug for a couple days so i hadn't seen him and um i didn't kiss her goodbye because i had that bug so i didn't want to like give it to her which you know is is hard because that was the last time i saw her that when she walked out the door she my mom's like we get swimming lessons start today we gotta go and um and then they went um about one o'clock or one fifteen. I was actually getting ready for um, a day at my my girlfriend had uh, an in ground pool, and I was going to go over there with my my daughter, and we were just going to you know relax and um, and my mom called and said uh, Molly's not at, at the pond that day, and so it just seemed like what do you mean this can't be right like no we you know we weren't weren't thinking about abduction that was like the farthest thing from our mind so we. Um, you know, I just, I thought something must be wrong. So I started driving towards the, the pond and, you know, there's the center of town where everything is, you know, leads to all the roads outside of town. So right in the center of town was where I saw my mom and she's, I could tell she was driving crazy and she was, something was wrong. So she says, screams out the window, we're going to the police station and, you know, we're just a few yards or feet away. We weren't very far. So we drove over and, um, you know, I, I have this baby, I'm trying to get out and we, we go into the police station and, and the police officer on duty said, well, she's probably just with her friends. And I thought, well, did you check with her friends? Like, it's been a long time. And and my mom's like, her shoes are there, her shoes are there. So I'm like, well, her shoes are there. Why, who goes anywhere without their shoes? And he's like, kind of like, just like, you got acting like we're overreacting my mom's like i want you to call the chief now i want you to find my husband i want you to call the chief so this is in 2000 and my dad had one of those like flip phones and he pulled the antenna out (laughs) for a cell phone so um they were 
you know, trying to locate my dad, but he was a probation officer and he would go what we would call out on the road and like go check on his clients in their homes and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Wait a second. He's somewhat in the world of law enforcement. He's he a probation is. officer. He is. Yes. Yep. So did he, did he have any enemies? Yeah, that's what we, I mean, I mean, that definitely crossed the police's mind. Not initially, um, but definitely came up a day or two later. And and definitely is something people bring up could possibly be uh, my dad um, kind of fell into probation. He was more of a drug counselor. So we ran a methadone clinic in Michigan when we lived there. Um, and, and that's what he was into. He had, he had been um, actually met my mother when he was in the priesthood. So he, he started like the first free and lunch program in Baltimore. Like he was a, like counselor kind of person, you know, and, and sort of fell into this. So I'm saying that because his, that was his mode of operandi. Like when he had people on probation, he wasn't like, you're an asshole. You're a piece of shit. He's like, let me help you. This is here. You know, all right. You know, I could, you know, it was a wedding. All right. One first time and come back in a second time. Listen, dude, you get it. You know? So I think he really, approached things more as a counselor and he was more successful so for the most part from everything i know and and remember you know he was he was in people's weddings he was asked to be their um you know best man after you know counseling them or so he, they respected he, him and for they the, i remember him. yeah i remember guys building stairs at our house because dad was trying to give him a job after and get him on their feet like I could definitely have been one of somebody. Absolutely. I think the police probably have looked at that for sure. We never identified anyone that it could be that had like a major problem with my dad or anything. Uh, the search for Molly became the largest in state's history. Three years later, a hunter discovered a blue bathing suit. Shortly after her remains were discovered buried in the woods. Police say she was murdered. And there have been several persons of interest named in this case, including a man in a white car spotted by Molly's mother. He was smoking a cigarette, a car that was reported in the area the day Molly went missing. Her mother gave a detailed description to police, and that's the suspect sketch drawing that you see that's associated with this case. Now, as for suspects in the case... There is a long list of suspects, and what seems to be a common theme with all of them, a history of rape, murder, or violence towards women and teen girls. In 2009, police named Rodney Stranger a suspect in the case. Stranger was convicted of killing his girlfriend and had lived in Massachusetts, just a few miles from Molly's hometown, more than 20 years. Then about a year after Molly's murder, he just up and moved one day. The sister of the girlfriend he killed called police, telling them shocking information. Stranger had access to a white car and had hunted in the woods where Molly's body was later found. He matched the description of the man Molly's mom detailed to police, but he was never charged in the case. In 2011, another likely suspect and another man who had been in the area at the time and resembled the sketch, Gerald Battistoni. He had worked as an informant for the Eastern Hampton County Narcotic Task Force in the 2000s. Before that, he served time in prison for repeatedly raping a teen girl in the 90s. 
and after he was named a suspect by police, he attempted suicide in prison. He died behind bars in the year 2014. He submitted a DNA sample and was not arrested. Then, more than 20 years after Molly disappeared from her lifeguard post, a big break in the case. Who are the the main characters in this case? Everyone kind of really focuses on the guy that your mom saw that morning. Right, right. So that would be, I guess, our key character is the person my mom saw the day before Molly disappeared. So Molly was really on her eighth day of work. My brother had worked in this position for three years prior to her taking this job. He had trained her um, the two weekends before, and it was a Tuesday, so it was her second day by herself. And um, my mom had had driven her, you know, Molly was getting her license. So she she would drive there and jump out. And my mom um, saw a guy in a, in a white car and he, he made her feel uncomfortable. My mom's been a teacher for a long time. And she kind of gave him that teacher stare, like, what are you kind of doing? And he didn't react to it. Most of us get that, uh, you know, automatic, like, oh, she can see me kind of thing. Or she knows I'm doing something. And, you know, if we're smoking a joint or something, we'll go. Um, But he didn't have that reaction. He just kind of sat there very confidently and continued smoking. And he was smoking very effeminately. And so that really caught her attention is mannerisms. And um, just that he he was so bold. And so she felt so uncomfortable that she ended up going um, back up to sit with Molly for a while. And then, you know, she had this conversation about, you know, Molly, do you feel safe? And Molly kind of gave us a key answer there too, I think, because she said, mom, don't worry. It's just fishermen. It's just fishermen that come here. So, I mean, I kind of knew him maybe or seen him before or was familiar with him. Right. Right. And Molly was a kind of, you know, she was just kind of one of those happy kind of good go lucky kind of kids. She would, she wouldn't think danger right away. She would think, Oh, Hey, Oh, you're here. Let's, let's talk. And how's your day going? And Oh, where's your dog? And, you know, kind of, she's personable. She was very extroverted. And so, yeah, definitely. Could she have um, run into this person before? I mean, that's, that's the scenario we've painted with a couple of these different, um, you know, persons of interest that have brought, been brought to light by, um, by different media sources or, you know, over the years we've, we've worked with um, different private investigators or people who've worked in, um, you know, criminal lobby, uh, criminal justice or, or um, behavior analysis. And um, they've brought people forward. And, and so one of those people was um, Rodney Stanger, who was from central Massachusetts um, and came to light because he had murdered his um, girlfriend. And before he murdered his girlfriend. The girlfriend was talking to her sister and sort of in code trying to tell her that she thought he killed Molly Bish. And um, so he, so he's in jail in Florida. Um, You know, was he in the area when Molly was um, abducted? Yes. Did he have access to a white car? Yes. There was a white car in his family. Was he a violent man? Absolutely. Um, he was very drug and alcohol involved. He was a fisherman. He was a a hunter. So he would have known those areas in the, you know, this is about 20 minutes from where he lived. Um, Molly's actual, uh, lifeguard training was in the vicinity of where his, um, home was. So she maybe could have walked to Dunkin' Donuts and had a conversation, you know, who knows? Possibilities are, are Mm -hmm. certainly there. Um, but then we only go so far. 
Yes, he was a, he was a smoker. Um, we found uh, actually Bob Ward um, from Fox found a uh, fishing license from April of 2000, and he really looks just like the composite sketch. It's it's very eerie. So you know, but then we go we go so far, and then there's there's kind of we we hit a wall. Um, later on, we had um, Gerald Battistoni who came into the picture via a private investigator who was working on a child. Um, rape case uh, in Central Mass. And as he was looking at this uh, case, he sat, found all these ties to Molly. So this um, uh, Battistoni had been a drug informant for a the next town over from where Molly was abducted from in Palmer, Massachusetts. And so he had access to um, like a police weaponry for some reason. He had been busted um, and arrested for um, impersonating a police officer. He was obsessed with a a young girl who was a daughter of an ex. And so he would stalk her. And I guess he he was known to make his um, girlfriends wear children's underwear um, when he was having sex with them. And there was just some really egregious things he would do. But this young girl he was stalking lived very close to the pond actually um by the cemetery which might have been the exit um where, where molly was taken from so behind um the pond it's a very wooded area on dead end road and then um immediately behind where molly would have been sitting there's like trails that go to, that actually lead to a cemetery and, and you can walk them i've walked them barefoot and um so it's not um you know, it's secret trails. So people take their dogs and, and, um, but that would definitely be a way someone could have gotten her out of there. They could have parked in the cemetery and, um, sort of hit out there. There was a white car seen, at um, the, uh, car wash that was at the end of the road where Molly's, um, down the Cummins Pond Road where Molly was taken from. So there was a white car seen in the vicinity that day at a couple different occasions, so who the man in the white car is, was it, you know, Rodney Stang or, or Gerald Battistoni? I don't know. Battistoni's, um, one of his exes testified or made a, a statement that um, he told her that he, if anyone asks him where he was that day, he was driving her car in Warren, Massachusetts, and she had a white car. So, um, you know, where any of these cars are, you know, I don't know. Um those are those are all the questions I have. <laughs> for the state have you ever talked to him in jail, in prison? Um, no, I did have someone that I knew that went to talk to Gerald Battistoni in prison, uh, and she, she didn't feel like he, um, you know, was really cooperating. Um, Ronnie, uh, yeah, Ronnie Sanger would never allow a visit. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I have not. Um, mm-hmm. After that, we've had, you know, Molly's boyfriend was uh, an immediate person of interest. Um, he ended up dying in um, 2008 or 9, 2009, I think, in a car accident. Um, but he was under a cloud of suspicion for those, you know, nine years of his life. Poor kid was only 16. Um, I don't, you know, he came from an, an sort of a... Um, family that had some domestic violence issues and, and definitely some alcohol issues. Um, so I think the police immediately went in local police immediately went to, to him. I I don't believe that Steve could have pulled that off. Um, yeah, you would have known him. So what was your interactions with him? What did Molly say about him? 
She had only been dating him three months, so it was a it was a new relationship. She liked him. He was shy. He was kind of um, kind of like um, you know, he had some special. He was in some special ed classes, like maybe some like light learning disabilities, nothing major. Um, but he so he but he just he lacked that confidence. So I. You know, I don't know. I don't, he didn't seem to have a temper. She never seemed afraid of him. Seemed just like, you know, that kind of honeymoon stage. She thought he was cute and he was infatuated with her, of course. And um, yeah, so we didn't really get past that. So, you know, I feel for him because he, he, he just didn't have the tools or the support network to, you know, deal with something in, in that capacity. I, I can't imagine his, you know, his perspective had been. Um, and then his whole life too. Oh yeah, totally, totally changed, totally went down. Yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, the media crucified him. I mean, and he was literally sixteen. <laughs> like, oh. it was, it was sad. You've been on almost every show imaginable at this point, and with all the podcasts, has there been any tips that have come from that? Oh, tons. Um, I get tips probably at least once a week. I, I, I would average a tip from myself I get them personally um, I hand them over to the police so I can only imagine the volume that that they get uh, they say that the case is, is still very active I, I believe that um, you know I still believe we're still one piece away I think the complication with Molly's case is that there are so many persons of interest and you could almost go down this you know storyline for this person and then this storyline for that person it's really hard to figure out which narrative is the one that truly happened and and the the perpetrator who who really took molly and, and did this to her so i think that's been i think our greatest challenge and i'd love to you know dive deep into each one of these people someday just to see you know i know what i know um but what the police know you know i don't know what they know and it's you know, obviously hasn't been enough to charge someone. So it's, it's tough. Any um, substantial leads that have come from the recent attention on the case? None that I know of. I mean, I think it's still the same characters that are still floating around in our sort of sphere. We, we just kind of got tips on, on some of these same players. And I encourage people to, to share that information and to even if they think it's repetitive or they think, um, you know, it's not that important. You know, maybe they just saw someone drive by with a car or they saw this particular person in a specific area. I, you know, I, I think you, you and I both know those those are the pieces that are so important to put every the whole picture together. And so I think, um, you know, like everyone in, in these horrible club that no one wants to belong to knows that that's the part of the game is keeping this um, story in, in the forefront of people's minds and and knowing that. It, it hasn't been solved. And I think oftentimes people will, um, you know, we'll have this media attention about around a specific person and they'll think, Oh, it was that guy in Florida or it was, Oh, that guy in Western mass or, or whoever the character was. And that, that can be, you know, something I have to sort of work against too, because then people think the story has been um, told or that the, the crime has been solved and it actually hasn't. We just got to this, you know, place and then we can't go anymore and I, I keep digging and 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 you know doing these um, media opportunities and shows uh, to hope that I'll jog you know someone's memory or get that 
one piece taken from the tree that will um, put that storyline together so we have the whole picture. On June 3rd, 2021, the DA announced a new person of interest, Francis P. Sumner Sr., a registered sex offender with a rap sheet more than 20 pages long. Not joking. Unclear what evidence may point to him, but police say their investigation is ongoing. But what we do know is that he died in 2016. And he also looks like the man Maggie described to police. A few months ago, detectives traveled to the prison in Ohio where his son Junior is behind bars for aggravated battery. There, they took a DNA sample. We started to talk about it a little bit, how you initially found out in those first few moments. Yeah. And I know that it's tough, and I know that you have to talk about it a lot. So please tell me about those first moments and what's going on, and then where does this go, and how does the media get alerted, and, and how does your family handle that so- while you're trying to save her? So I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you one story and then give you that layout so you can have a context of thought about this. Um, because this this is hindsight that I give you. <laughs> um, but so before Molly uh, uh, disappears, again, she's 16. She's playing three sports. She's an honor roll student. She's not really getting in she's not she just starts dating this kid whose family is associated with maybe being having some issues but like nobody's you know doing crystal meth out here in 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 central massachusetts like there was no meth labs there's no like major drugs were these kids smoking weed probably you know 100 percent. but like that was it there was nothing major happening the police for some reason had um a fix asian i would say on the crowd of um, kids that Molly's boyfriend w- was involved in. Uh, and we didn't know any of these people. My dad, my parents had a rule where Molly wasn't allowed to go over there. He could come to our house, but she wasn't allowed there. Did she sneak over there a couple times? I'm sure. Um, but nothing major. Like, she, we couldn't get away with anything. Like, my, my mom's like a hound dog and my father's a probation <laughs> officer. There was no, there was no room for error. Um, and, and so there, so she, so, so that there was this dynamic going on and and after i heard um somebody had had told myself and the police and and some of the private investigators that a police officer in town had told molly that he's going to put her into a place that her father can't get her out of which i'm not sure why anyone would say that to her you know i mean she wasn't like like i said she wasn't doing anything she didn't really have time she's working two jobs you know, did she have this boyfriend that maybe they didn't like? Yeah, but I mean, again, this is real low-level stuff here. I mean, this is smoking weed. His parents are maybe drinking too much of, you know, fighting. Um, but so very, very peculiar. So, so having weird. said that, yeah, so having said that, now, again, I grew up in this town, too. And and I was the oldest, and for some reason, I was probably the most, the biggest risk taker. Like, I would be the one that had the parties when my parents went um, on the school vacations with my brother and sister. And I was the one that, um, you know, kind of did kind of, like, push the limits a little bit. And I was grounded for weeks, years, you know? like it, so I So I know that Molly and John didn't even dare because they saw me get in trouble so they knew there was same thing with my older sisters you know (laughs) i would just sit back and watch them get in so much trouble and then you know i just 
decided not to do anything. <laughs> it's not worth it. I missed out on so much fun. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, so okay, so the day comes, we're at the police station. You know, the, the police officer on duty is saying her shoes are, um, she's probably just with her friends. Um, so I start driving to our friends' houses with, I actually pick up my friend um, who we were going to the house um, to swim at and she helps me with the baby. And, you know, I go to her friend, I go to a couple of her friend's house and I stop at the boyfriend's house and, and there's all these kids at the boyfriend's house. I don't know. They're six years younger than me. I don't, I don't know who they are really. Um, But I'm like now like anxious and upset and worried. And I'm like, we need to find Molly, Steve, get your ass in gear. Let's go. And he's kind of like, groggy and just waking up and um all these kids are like not really reacting and then they're like oh okay well we'll we'll call this person we'll call that person i don't know who any of those people are that they're talking about so i'm like all right let's go steve so i take the boyfriend with me now later they say that he has a cut beneath his eye i did wait for him to put his eye um eyebrow ring in and he was just like taking like he was just like nonchalant and i was like come on like let's go something's wrong here and so he so it did that's the only thing that kind of um was different but i didn't notice a cut i mean maybe there was one there i think i would have noticed it because i was kind of like who are all these people and what's going on here um but i didn't i did not notice that um so then we go to the pond now at this point the you know the fire department (laughs) has pissed off because the Warren police department hadn't done anything. So they decided to start diving in the pond. Um, the local gas station owner is, um, someone who grew up in town and, you know, people hunt and, and fish and, and they, I don't know, boy scouts and all that. Uh, he felt like he knew all these areas. So he's developing search parties and people are listening to him because he's, you know, is kind of like a town leader. And meanwhile, the, Crime scene's completely destroyed. A, a parent had picked up the wet lifeguard whistle and was acting in Molly's place. The parks commissioner had come back, closed the park, um, the first aid kit. So the parks commissioner was interesting as well because he had reported to the police that my brother was working that day um, initially when the police called him and said, Where, why isn't the lifeguard at her? So Molly, you know, arrives around 9.58 on the first you know, person comes to the beach around 10.05 or something, and they're like, there's no lifeguard here. Um, swimming lessons are starting that day, so it's kind of important. So they, you know, take the police radio, which is what Molly has, and they, they call in. So the police call the parks commissioner, and he says, oh, well, it's John working that day. But it's weird because he had run into my brother that morning at nine o'clock in the morning at an Ace Hardware in West Brookfield, the next town over from Warren. Um, John had just gotten a, a job learning carpentry. So he was working for a company out there building a fence and um, saw him that morning. So that was kind of weird um, that he would say has that. Has he ever been looked into? He has. He has. He actually, there was um, recently a, um, a court order to get his DNA. So... Um, but nothing, you know, here's what I think, you know, we have this unidentified DNA and that's great. And I want them to preserve it. Right. Cause I want us to have the right tools to be able to, to fix it. But I don't think that they're getting all this DNA and like testing it against it. I don't know. I don't know if they're just holding this DNA and like, a, I don't know. 
a list or something. I'm not entirely sure. But there's certainly people who have given DNA or they've gotten DNA from and it's never gone anywhere. Um, so that's the mystery. And that's, again, why I'm like really pushing this familial DNA. <laughs> um, because, we again, we have these suspects be, and, and, and we're lucky. Again, a lot of these people came because of people we've worked with. I mean, the police aren't, you know, state police aren't saying, oh, Heather, this is a guy we're looking at this week, or, you know, we're going to look at this guy next week. Um, you know, they don't really tell you anything. Okay, so what what DNA was collected or off of what? Was it off of her bathing suit? And so, then where, yeah. where does that uh, line up with... What it? What's the rules in Massachusetts, or why hasn't it been tested in a? Has it been tested in a national database, or what was found, and what's the holdup? So, so the next day they have a a, a search. Let me just go back to this. Yeah. And um, everybody in town is now going to this search to look. All Molly's friends, my friends, everybody, and that same police officer who said that to Molly said that about Molly says to a group of her friends and my brother, she's probably just tripping in the woods. Um, so after, so that was weird because none of us know Molly's doing drugs and. You know, if he knew Molly was doing drugs, he probably should have told my dad, but like Molly wasn't doing drugs. He was just, I think, kind of, so this is where our problem lies because the local police divert, you know, did not respond correctly to the investigation. So therefore the crime scene wasn't adequately searched. By the time the state police come in, you know, three hours later, yeah, they're getting some cigarette butts off the path and, you know, maybe they can get some stuff from the crime scene but most of our our dna is not from there but it it also kind of shows you how where where the air of the ways are and yeah we do have these people of interest but i mean are we even looking in the right pond you know i mean like so first of all you know the the police go there they think she drowned or they think she ran away or or she's tripping in the woods with her friends and then they are pointing at the boyfriend so they're wasting all these days totally frazzled even even the state police when they're going in there they're listening to local police and they're like looking at the boyfriend i remember getting i I was never even questioned no one even brought me down that day they they took my family and i'm standing you know alone at the beach thank god my friend had had the baby um but i didn't get questioned till later and when they're finally questioning they kept talking about the boyfriend and so there's a lot of missed um missed opportunities and you know they did the usual looking at sex offenders but it wasn't until they found the bathing suit that we really were able to really extrapolate some um, dna and and get some real good evidence and that was because at the we were very lucky at the time um there was a forensic anthropologist in the medical examiner's office and her name is dr Anne marie myers and so she designed um this uh search that was based on anthropology not criminal justice stuff you know and so they they just did grid by grid looking um for pieces of molly and again we're out here in the country so there's bobcats out here that i guess have trails and and she was left on the side of one of those so her body was spread out by animals and you know we have all these seasons out here so there's layers and layers and layers of leaves and underbrush um so it was it was i mean 
feet of underbrush. These guys had to dig through to find Molly's body, um, but they were able to recover um, some items from um, where she was found. So that's predominantly what our, um, you know, where our evidence is coming from is the crime um, location. How did she die? Uh, they don't know. So it, um, there was one crack at the back of her skull. Uh, so it could be that she was hit by a blunt force object, or it could be that she was, um, you know, the, the, her skull just moved and hit a rock, you know, the wrong way or something. Um, it, important to note when Molly was um, abducted, she didn't have a lifeguard chair, like one of those tall chairs. Um, she had a beach chair. So she would literally set up the beach chair and then she had like almost like a fishing box which was where the um you know the first aid kit was and she'd put her feet on you know or drop her shoes on the side and put her feet up on the on the kit and kind of just lay out again she wasn't gonna swim because she doesn't like the squishy water so she's not going in there um and she wouldn't have walked around without her shoes on so I mean, there's some um ideas that maybe someone feigned an injury and she jumped up really quick you know, and, and open the kit. Um, the parks commissioner has has um, reported that the kit was, the first aid kit was open. I mean, we don't know how reliable that information is. The guy couldn't pass a lie detector test. So, I mean, I don't know, but. Um, he didn't pass a lie detector test? No, he's a real, he's a really interesting guy. And when I say interesting, I mean that in the most disgusting way possible. <laughs> Her boss. This is her boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He turned out to be a really... I mean, I, I get tips currently that he is um, sexually assaulting um, young women who are going into his house, helping him as CNAs or healthcare aides. So I, I turn them over to the police and I say, listen, I can't... This I cannot be responsible for somebody else getting hurt. Like, I don't know if this guy did it or didn't do it. I don't know who did it. But people are telling me that he's doing really inappropriate things when they go into his house and they've quit their jobs. They've um, And he's the one that said that your brother was working, even though right. he had seen your brother. Right. And he would know that Molly is working there that day. Right. right. And what was he buying at the Ace Hardware that morning at the hardware store, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning? But you know? why also was the police officer saying these random things so that police officer ended up losing his job years later um for inappropriately yelling at two young women who were yeah probably teenagers um you know being really loud and obnoxious walking down the road saying you know inappropriate things and but they recorded him on 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 their phones and he's a law enforcement officer so he engaged pretty um in some pretty yucky things with those girls and um he was he was let go but then he went to vermont and became a vermont state trooper Um, and now and now he's back in in massachusetts and he's 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 still working in law enforcement so that's because they seal the records um and then it's not held against them if there was a, a reason to leave or whatnot right oh yeah that is very interesting. And has he ever taken a test or has he ever been questioned or? You know, they, the state police always assure me he had an alibi. It's not him. It's not him. You know, I don't know. I, 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 they, they won't tell me what, what, what they, they won't tell me what they do to solve this case basically. Um, so they just, 
we'll say things like, oh, we got a feeling it wasn't this person, or we interviewed them and we just got a feeling that this isn't it or whatever. Wait, they have a feeling. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so funny story. They um, called me recently and told me they want to give me some of Molly's items back um, that they don't need anymore. That Why don't they need them? I don't know because a homicide investigations never, you know, there's no statute of limitation, but okay. So my first thought though, is like, I need to consult with an expert and learn how to bag and tag it just in case. Cause I cannot yes. trust these people. Yes. And I'm like, and then I'm like, I don't know, chain of custody, even if they do give it to me, it's probably not going to hold up in court. Like these are the things I think about because of the, extraordinary irresponsibility of law enforcement and it's not in massachusetts it's everywhere i mean i've got friends what are the that, items and when do you get them back um they didn't tell me they they have to have that list approved first now i can't imagine what they had i mean i can only, i can think like maybe her adidas shoes that she had that day i mean her clothes were never found um and nothing else was i mean she didn't see we didn't own the you know, the, our first aid kit or the, and I can't remember them coming to, I mean, maybe they took her computer, but like in her phone, I, I just, I can't imagine, or maybe her pager. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I wonder what's uh, there. And I wonder if that is a sort of a trophy. Right. You know, like uh, what was missing. Right. 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 Well, her clothes were missing her. I mean, mm-hmm. her shorts and her shirt has never been found. So we found parts of the bathing suit um she had like like thin boxer cotton and back in the 90s you remember that was cool when you'd roll up your (laughs) boxers um so she had those on in like a tank top so could it have been taken by animals you definitely or maybe somebody has it and where are you now in your investigation it sounds like you know you're staying on top of it (laughs) Well, I am really working hard on this familial DNA bill. So um, you guys have familial DNA. And you know what is so interesting is that I started working on this. And um, there's a little article about it in the Cape Cod Times. I live on Cape Cod now in the other side of Massachusetts. And um, uh, this this man um, emailed me from California. And he's like, I, I, you know, I work on this. I'd love to help you. Well, turns out he is an expert on DNA. And and trains people all over the world and and so he's literally been my my um my mentor and my coach because um i'm you know just a special ed teacher over here and so understanding the complications of you know the genetic genealogy and the familial dna and even you know our, how our systems work in our dysfunctional um has been he's been really um helpful in helping me understand that so his name is rock Harmon, and he was um a prosecuting attorney on the OJ Simpson case. So DNA has been a huge, um, you know, something that he's felt very, very strongly about. And, and, and this is how, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, as, as terrible and and hard as this is, and, you know, knowing that the reality that there are all these bad people out there, there are these amazing people that come in and, and help you, which is, everything so i'm um i'm trying to get this bill passed in massachusetts um massachusetts wanted it as legislation because our state i think um is tricky and and they have tricky time playing in the sandbox together and so the scientists um in the state wanted this to go in as a real um 
protocol that could be ironed out legislatively. So that that's kind of what we're doing. It just it just got a bill number in the Senate, um, and so I'm really hopeful. I've been I've been working hard on um, calling legislators and 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 like the reason I'm so grateful for Rock is that now I can really teach them the difference between the genetic genealogy and the familial searching. And um, as you probably know, the familial searching is just opening that. I call it opening the net a little bit long, mm-hmm. bigger in our in our CODIS system and, and trying to get that hit. The people that'll hear this episode, I mean, that is something that we talk about a lot with Golden State Killer. And, you know, that's one of the big famous cases. That's how, you know, he was captured ultimately and, and things like that. So it's, you know, DNA from a relative um, that is somehow uh, connected to the DNA found at the crime scene. And then that's how they yep. put the pieces together. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, all these people in the CODIS system have committed felons that I didn't know that 50% of the people in CODIS have a relative in CODIS. So um, that says something sociologically and culturally, I think, but numbers wise, um, you know, for familial searching as a tool for law enforcement to get these bad guys, I mean, that really is is a good, is a good odd. So um I, I would take that as a tool. <laughs> well, so I'm very t- excited for you. Congratulations. And um, please keep me posted with that. I will. I will. Definitely. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're just hoping for the best so far. It's been, um, had really good reception um, with the legislators and just making it through this crazy process of passing a bill, which um, isn't as easy as they teach you in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, what was it? I'm just a bill. That whole. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, they make it sound yeah. like such a process that yeah. it actually goes, and then you go backwards, and and then they reconfigure it so it doesn't even look the same. <laughs> but I was lucky, actually. COVID was really fortunate because we had put this in two years ago, and when COVID hit, it kind of put a pause in everything. But it allowed. Um, I was on the Mass Missing Persons Task Force in Massachusetts, and in that role, um, I was connected to our Forensic Oversight Committee, which is a really diverse group of um, defense attorneys and and prosecutors and judges and scientists, and they were able to edit the bill and give me some feedback. So I we were able to incorporate that into the new um, the new bill. So I think it went in really strong, and I'm really hopeful that we will get this through. And you know, if we don't solve Molly's case, and we solve any of the other cases in Massachusetts, that's a win for sure. That's kind of how Molly lives on and helps other people. And you have a foundation. Tell me about the foundation and how people can help. Sure. So um, my parents actually started the foundation uh, because we were we couldn't find any pictures of Molly <laughs> um, when she disappeared. We had like prom pictures and like funny pictures, but um, we didn't have a good head and shoulders shot. And that's, you know, one in six kids is recovered with a head and shoulders um, picture. So we, again, you know, these are all the things we learned about after, you know, Molly went missing. And, and so my parents literally started a, a foundation on the on the kitchen table and they did about um, 750,000 of these um, child ID kits. And, you know, you just get like a a picture. This is actually not a real person. This is just somebody funny. (laughs) We're looking at a picture of Shrek. (laughs) And look at Shrek's fingerprints. But that's, you know, Um, probably, you know, somebody that you 
Yeah, you go into the schools and, you know, you show the kids. Yeah, and it's got, like, rules for safety in here, just simple things. Gives, like, a good conversation starter with your um, kids. You know, if it's in your glove compartment. My dad always said keep it in your freezer because it's just a place that you will remember that you threw it in there. You'll see, like, what is this doing in here? Um, And it'll stay good. But that's how it started. And um, my, my father had a stroke in 2007. So he's, you know, he's doing okay, but my mom you know, as full-time caretaking. So it kind of transitioned to me and I, I've done a lot more um, focusing on the investigation and um, legislative work um, and advocacy than, than actually doing um, safety kits. But um, a lot of other agencies have taken that on over this time. So I felt like it was okay to let that go. Um, as a sibling of a person um, who who was abducted in in your early life, you do struggle with your identity and like where's my voice in this? And you know, it probably has taken me about twenty years to figure out what my voice is. And and I guess it's just to um, make sure that there are enough laws to protect us and um, certainly protect us and and give our law enforcement as many tools as possible. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing and finding your voice. Thank what you. what would Molly's voice be like? What would she be like today? Oh, I think about that sometimes so much because I spent the pandemic by myself with two dogs. And <laughs> when I started talking to them in public, I started getting worried about myself. <laughs> but I do. I, I, I thought about like, you know, would she come visit me out here? And what would it be like? And, you know, I think Molly... Molly cared so much about other people. Like I know she would do something in in the human service field, whether she was a preschool teacher or a counselor or or something. I, I'm I'm certain that she would have done something to take care of other people. So it is fitting that the work that we do is to ensure um, you know other people are taken care of. And, and I think that was sort of a philosophy that my parents developed on, with us early on. Like I said about my dad earlier, you know, he they they just had this um you know we didn't have a lot we had a little ranch house my my dad worked three jobs and but whatever we had we gave we you know my mom knit mittens because that's all she could give to the kid who didn't have them um that's what we learned to do and I think um that's how Molly would live I think she would live to make sure other people are taken care of that's wonderful did you talk to her did she talk to oh you? yeah oh yeah I talked to her all the time like can you believe mom is saying this to me right now <laughs> or I wish you were here because I would not be getting this <laughs> that kind of thing yeah I probably talked to her a lot yeah in my own mind and you know and also to give me strength like you know uh, you know you've we've you've heard repeatedly probably from um family members it's it's a struggle to keep a normal life and and then like solve a murder on on the side i mean i am sarcastic and i joke about it but like it's not normal it's not a normal way to live you know and um there are really scary nights and i don't know that i i can't tell you that i feel safe in this world i i just couldn't because i i don't and um so yeah I, i talk to her when i'm scared or when it's hard um, thank you for talking to me. Thank you oh, for no your problem. time and sharing your story. I know that um, it's tough. Yeah, no, I no, I appreciate you carrying these stories. So you're doing such a great job, and I have enjoyed listening to your podcast. And um, you know, I'm just grateful for for someone that can really um, take these burdens 
on with with us. So thank you. Thank you. Now, when Heather is not working to solve her sister's case, she's working to pass legislation in Massachusetts to help solve other cases with familial DNA. To help with that and to learn more about the case, you can visit their website, mollybishfoundation.com. You can see pictures of Molly there. I also have pictures and information on my website, truecrimedeadline.com. And of course, there is also a tip line that you can use associated with this specific case. That number is 508-453-7575. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. This season dedicated to my best friend, my French bulldog, my crime-fighting canine, Mr. Gatsby, who is now in doggy heaven. From both of us, please hug your pet tonight. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. We're up against those networks, studios, TV channels, you name it. It's easy, it's free. Hit five star, please. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Write a review. And include your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster, because I want to give you a proper shout-out. This shout-out goes to the person named Mojo Jojo Q., And they wrote, a new true crime pod obsession. I love this podcast because Matt Johnson's ability to tell a story and great conversations he had with victims, families, and friends. But my favorite part about the podcast is his voice is so soothing to me. Probably because he's a reporter, I really love listening to his voice. Well, thanks. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate it. Investigators, until next time. (laughs) 